Please turn to page 1157 and 1 Corinthians chapter 16. This is the famous Low Sunday, the Sunday after Easter. Not so low today, good to see you all. Um, but that's where we are. Passion for Life has ended uh, with the capitals. I hope the Passion for Life, small p and small l, will continue uh, as we go on serving the Lord. Easter is always, is over. But I was reminded from a young student on the bus the other day that after Easter, it was always Easter. Some people listen to my sermons who say they remember the famous four words. And 1 Corinthians chapter 16, as you know and guess, follows 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And 1 Corinthians 15 is the great resurrection chapter. I'm sure you know that 1 Corinthians 15 is the first account of Easter in Scripture. Chronologically, it comes before the Gospels. This came before the Gospel. And when you read 1 Corinthians 15, you get the account of the resurrection of Jesus at the beginning. Step by step, it talks about the people to whom he appears. And it builds up to an amazing climax. Just look at, if you've got your Bible open in chapter 15, verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has been raised from the dead. That's great. And just glance on to, down to uh, verse 57. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you can sense this tremendous excitement these Christians at Corinth had Reminded of the truth of resurrection. Then comes verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor is not in vain. And remember, there's no chapter division in the original. Now about the collection. Can you imagine a greater deflation than that? All the glorious bit of the resurrection then now about the collection. But of course, what Paul is doing when he writes to these Corinthians is saying to them, it is indeed after Easter, always Easter. That is to remind them that uh, always we live in the light of the great truths of Easter Day. And we live in the fulfilment of them. And we are East God's Easter people. And we are meant to live it out at all times. And that's why he comes right down to the very practical things of Christian living. Uh, Years ago, when I was vicar here, there was one gentleman who didn't like my sermons because he said they were too doctrinal. I think he actually meant they were too long, but he, he was polite. And he said they were too doctrinal. He said, I like practical sermons. And one day I preached on giving. It was the most practical sermon you have ever heard. And being as I am, I couldn't avoid the temptation at the door to say, was that practical enough for you? A bit near the knuckle today, Vicar, he said. You, you see, you never win with some people. And the Easter message is a bit near the knuckle. It's all to do with uh, what we do with our lives in all kinds of ways. So 1 Corinthians 16, our post-Easter sermon. And I hope it's a, a very real challenge to us to live as Easter people, constantly. I have notes to tell me that in 1979... Uh, when I was but a young man, and many of you here hadn't even been thought of, in 1979, we were about to extend this church building. And we were doing it because God had blessed us, and we had a Sunday called Appeal Sunday, and we were challenging people to give. 
and I turn to 1 Corinthians 16. And I could say then, well, I can say it even more now, but I could say then, God has blessed us, so we do need more room. We want to see things expand. And if I could say that 30 years ago, think of all that's happened now and how true it is now. And so my text for that day and my text for this day, I think are very relevant. The text really is 1 Corinthians 16 verse 9. Literally, a great door stands open. That's what it literally says. A great door stands open. And the important thing in that door is to go through it. And surely you believe on this Sunday after Easter in this church that there's a great door standing open. Now, normally, if you see an open door, there's a a kind of temptation to want to look in, see what's on the other side. But this door is not looking inside, it's looking outside. There are two very good biblical illustrations. Way back in the book of Numbers, chapter 13, and I gather we're looking at Numbers in the next series of sermons. Way back in Numbers, chapter 13, they'd got to the edge of the promised land. And they sent 12 spies in to have a look at the promised land. And 10 came back and said, no go. Big cities, fortified cities, giants of men, not all, I'm afraid. And the other two said, oh, wait a minute. They're right, but God brought us through the Red Sea. And if God can do that, he can certainly do this, we should go. But no, the 10 won. I hesitate to say this with an election coming up, but... but, uh, majorities aren't always right. Uh, You better ponder that when the election comes. But ten said no, two said yes, and the two were right, but they turned away. And that door that was open was shut for 40 years. A whole generation missed an open door. And I want to suggest to you, we stand before an open door, we're not going to miss it, surely. And the open door comes back again in chapter 3 of the book of the Revelation. Again, a double reference to the open door into our hearts. The church of Laodicea, I stand at the door and knock. And as a young man, I had that text given to me and I opened the door of my heart and life has never been the same since. And there are people in this church who have recently opened their lives to Christ. But then in that same third chapter of Revelation, there's a picture of the church in Philadelphia. Brotherly love church. And the Lord says to them, I've set before you an open door. And if I open the door, nobody can shut it. Go through it. And I believe the Lord wants to say to us, go through it. That open door, good things behind us, better things ahead of us. And I suggest to you, we enter in three ways. We enter with hands open. That's one to four. Fellowship in giving. We enter with eyes open. That's verses 5 to 9. Fellowship in evangelism, in service, however you put it. And then in verses 10 to 14, enter with hearts. No, not open. Sounds like open heart surgery, doesn't it? No, our hearts on fire. Enter with hands open. Enter with eyes open. Enter with hearts on fire. Enter with hands open, verses 1 to 4. And that's to do with our worship. And it's to do with our fellowship. Now, for a long time, I was a great believer in popping money in the collection bag. I battled like mad against all these uh, direct debits and all the rest because I thought 
passing the bag and was all part of worship. Eventually, the financial boys, no, girls, the financial girls here, decided to persuade me that I ought really to help them by going on direct debit. So Margaret and I very obediently did the same. But I still, I feel guilty when the bag goes down my row. I feel, I, I always want to say to the people next door, we are giving, you know. I didn't like it. <laughs> but I, I first came across back, back, the bag situation when I was uh, preaching once in Jamaica. And in Jamaica, I, I saw to my great intrigue that they took money out of the collection plate when it, they took it out when the bag came past. I was assured that they were putting other coins in, they were taking the change out. It's rather nice, <laughs> sensible idea. But whether you do it like that or you do it by direct debit, the principle of these first four verses is important. The principle is that I give not spontaneously. Generally, spontaneity is not generosity. Normally. It's good sometimes to be spontaneous when Mary anointed Jesus and she poured out that oil. It was a spontaneous gesture with his death in mind, and don't miss it. But real giving, sacrificial giving, Easter giving, is planned carefully, thoughtfully, sacrificially. And it is, of course, part of our worship, whether we put it in the bag or not, later in this service. It's all to do with how much is God worth? I think those who have heard me preach here before, in the past, well, I've often said, you tell God more about how much you love him by what you do with the collection plate than what you do with the hymn book. Anybody can tell God how much you love him. This morning, David reminded us from this pulpit about the challenge to Peter. Simon Peter, do you love me? And how do we express that love? Well, very often in our, not in our singing, by all means, but it's very easy to sing, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, divines my soul, my life, my all. Well, that can be just words. Often it's what I do with my checkbook that tells God how much I love him, what he's worth to me. So in our worship, but also second in our fellowship, why was he having the collection, if you look at it, in verses 2 and 3? He's talking about giving to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. It was a, a very significant project for Paul. He spends two chapters in 2 Corinthians talking all about it. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. That it was a kind of spiritual activity. After all, the gospel had come from Jerusalem. Now it was our job to take the, the money, money back to Jerusalem to help those who helped us. And this lovely picture of fellowship. You know the Greek word for fellowship? Lots of people who don't know lots of Greek words know the word koinonia. Nice word of fellowship. Did you know that in the New Testament the word koinonia is used for the collection? Not here, for anybody who's got a Greek New Testament, it's not here. But in other chapters the word koinonia is a word for a collection. That I demonstrate my fellowship by giving. And there's a lot at the end of this chapter about those who gave and couldn't give refreshing Paul's spirit. What a tremendous challenge we have. I notice later on, in the course of the next few uh, months, we've got the vicar of Kilnhurst and Kendry coming back to preach here. That's nice. Because we have been sharing with them financially and in other ways, and they're tremendously grateful. Because, you see, that's part of something we can do out of the goodness of God's blessing to us. 
we can give. So in our fellowship and in our worship, we enter through that open door with hands open. And I hope that you and I are prepared to face the challenge. Years and years ago, I came across uh, a man who'd, been, who'd written the biography, the Duke of Wellington. Now, the Duke of Wellington, apparently, was a man you couldn't actually come to grips with. He was a sort of the man who won the Battle of Waterloo. Battle of Waterloo. Now, that Duke of Wellington was a, a, a difficult man to come to terms with. And the, the biographer said, eventually, he found the checkbooks and the uh, account books of the Duke of Wellington. And this was the comment. When I knew what Wellington did with his money, I knew the man. Would you dare, dare to think that one day, if somebody only had that your account books, would they say without any doubt, that man loved the Lord Jesus more than anything else? Would it come anywhere near that? Often that's the challenge. So enter with hands open. Then secondly, enter with eyes open. That's in verses 5 to 9. You see that Paul is very concerned about uh, getting back to Corinth. He spends a little while in verses 5 to 8 explaining why he's been delayed. I often uh, have in the past sending out letters and now emails. uh, And when I'm asked to go and speak at people's, I always say... God willing, the old DV, for those who remember the days of Latin tags, Deo Valente, DV, uh, if God wills. And the older I get, the more I say to them, if God wills. If you want to book me for next year, well, if I'm still here, if the Lord wills, yes, I'll come. So I understand how Paul feels. But he says, you see there in verse 8, but I'm staying here till Pentecost. Because, you see, there's a great door open here in Ephesus and there are many who oppose me. Please note those two things together. There's a great door for effective work open, but there's also a great door for the enemy as well. So I'm staying. He doesn't say it's tough here, so I'm moving on. It's tough here, so I'm staying. Let me deal with those two things. The... the, Eyes open to the opportunity, this why a door for effective work. If you were to read through the story of Ephesus, Acts 19 and 20, Acts 18, 19, 20, you can read the story of how remarkable it was that from this Ephesus, which was then a very flourishing seaport, no longer is, but it was, from Ephesus the gospel spread so that Paul could actually say in Acts 19 uh, that in verse 10, Acts 19:10, that all that the, the, the writer of Acts could say, that all the residents in Asia had heard the word of the Lord. Seems an exaggeration. But it was so widespread, that ministry, that it went all across Asia Minor. It started there. One of the joys now of uh, travelling around in ministry, in my little itinerant ministry, is I do meet people all over the place who used to come to Fullwood. Now, the trouble is, you don't always recognize them. The worst moment is when they say, quite quite wrongly, you don't look any different from the day you married us 35 years ago or something. And I've just thought, how old they look, but I don't say. It's it's very complicated. But I don't remember them. But eventually they tell me their story, and I meet the children of those who were married in Fullwood, and so it goes on. One One of the joys of what spills out from a church where God is at work 
So yes, the, the gospel spread, the opportunity spread. And so Paul can write in Acts chapter 20, and he, when he's recounting to these Ephesian elders what happened, how he preached from door to door and publicly, and he preached repentance and faith, and great things happened, and he remembers a work of grace. Read the story again of how it was a, a city full of magic, and people began to throw away their, what they called, Ephesian letters, their magical formula. The books of magic were burned. It was the home of Diana of the Ephesians, the great goddess Diana, a meteorite that had fallen from the sky and worshipped as a god. And when the gospel was preached, people turned their backs on paganism. No more time for it. And they couldn't sell their things anymore. So there means a great riot. All this with a sign of God remarkably at work. That's the opportunity. Please note that when there's an opportunity and God begins to work, then you will expect the enemy of souls to get at work as well. And so the opposition, the opportunity. A friend of mine was, went into Albania one of the first people to get back into Albania when it was opened up to the gospel after years of militant, atheistic communism. And he said it was wonderful. First prayer lesson he said it was wonderful. They were now getting all the Christian literature in. They were planning their alpha courses, whatever they did then. It was all happening. Then the next prayer lesson came. Please pray. The same open door that let the gospel in is letting all the extreme cults in, pornographic literature in. Same open door. Please pray. And always when God begins to work, you can expect the enemy. So eyes open to the opportunity. Please keep them open. But also eyes open to the opposition. What was the opposition that Paul faced in Ephesus? Well, we know from Acts 19 that it was he faced the trials from his own people, the Jews, the tests and trials from his own people. That was the biggest thing. Oh yes, he also faced in Ephesus those who hated Diana being demoted and they had this great riot and they all marched on the amphitheater, thousands of them. I gather if you go these days in one of the Cook's tours around the seven churches, they'll take you to the amphitheater where Paul went. And that was part of the opposition. But there are two aspects of the opposition I find fascinating and challenging. If you see it on the very same page in my Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32, it says, If I fought wild beasts, at Ephesus. Isn't that fascinating? Is that literally true? Was he actually thrown to the lions at Ephesus? Possible. Possible. But I think not. I think it's metaphorical. I think he's referring to the, the enemy who was so determined to be rid of him that he really had a battle on his hands. They were wild. In a moment, I'm coming back to where we are today. It rings bells every time I read these. Or turn on one page in your Bibles. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me just read verse 8 and 9 to you. He's referring to what happened in Ephesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. That's Ephesus. 
We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, in our hearts, please note that, we felt the sentence of death. I think that's Paul referring to deep depression. He would rather die than live. The opposition had become so great that Paul had reached the stage when death would have been a great release. Now, I've never been deeply depressed, but I've ministered to those who are, and some of you this, this evening will know it very personally as well. This was some of the opposition, or the effect of the opposition, on this man as he preached the gospel as he went through the open door, the enemy came in like a flood. The opposition from the vested interests of Diana of the Ephesians. The opposition of those who didn't like their magic being defeated and their Ephesian letters being burned. The opposition, most of all, from fellow Jews who hated him because he was now a Christian. That was the opposition. May I just bring it to where we are today in the world of today? It was mentioned in our prayers this, morning, this evening. David mentioned his sermon this morning quoting from Pakistan. All there are very many parts of our world which uh, make the story in Ephesus pale by comparison. People's lives being lost, people's families being lost, people's homes being burned. We had an email from Pandang Yamsat who was a member of this congregation his PhD here very much the heart of the militant Islam that is trying to destroy the Christian church in the north of Nigeria. And our very carefully doctored reports in the press will tell us that there's a community uh, tension, as though both sides are equally guilty. That isn't true, but of course you must say that. Mosques are being burned, churches are being burnt, and Pandang sent us for our prayers he is trying to restrain his people from getting their own back. Which you can understand is, a very under, is an understandable reaction. So that's in part of our world. And if you read the press, you may have noticed that uh, six bishops drew attention to the troubles in our own country and uh, Rowan Williams felt it right to remind them that there are worse sufferings in the world. Well, he's right. But they're all of an essence. So come back to where we are. Of course we are being marginalized as Christians. Of course the testing time is coming in our nation as Christians. And I believe this time of election, it's up to us as Christians to ask questions, very serious questions about what is going on. Yes, we, we, we talk about caring about the family, but it's not a matter of morality, says uh, our, one of our politicians our local MP complains that anybody who talks about uh, these moral issues are going back to Edwardian days. This is the kind of issue we face. And as Christians, we have to learn to stand up. So there's always a test and a challenge. May I just remind you that Jesus warned us. He warned us that the day would come when there would be those around who were dressed up in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. That is, they belong to us, but they don't belong to us. I have, it is my duty to tell you that down the road in a few days' time at St. Mark's Broomhill there's a worship of Christa, a female Christ on a, on a cross to be worshipped. This is heresy. This is blasphemy. I'm one of those who have written to the authorities to complain bitterly that the Church of England is allowing it to be publicised in, in its press and it is against the gospel. 
It's not another aspect of the Christian faith. It is, to my mind, so utterly offensive and sacrilegious that I feel that's, that's the enemy. That we are told not to be naive. We are told to waken up to the world in which we live. There are many who oppose. It has ever been thus. Now, may I just point out, before I go on to my final point, this is not a contradiction of verse 14. Do everything in love. Oh, Philip, how dare you mention things like that? Do everything in love. Is it loving when you see heresy and wrong teaching and dangerous immorality? Is it, is it, is it, not, is it, not, is it loving to keep quiet? If I know there's something terrible happening, then it's my job to waken people. The watchman in the Bible is a man who's told to speak out when he sees what's coming. And if he does that, well, he's not responsible in one sense. Some of you know that I had what they call, the medics call an episode. I'm always intrigued by these things. I hope an episode remains only an episode, but there you are. I had an episode before Christmas. I notice a number of people now know about that because whereas normally people ask me, how are you? They don't listen for the answer because they're not really all bothered. It's just, how are you? But when they say, how are you, with their head on one side, with a kind of wistful, worrying look, <laughs> then you guess they've got the message. Yes, I did have an episode. So when I had an MRI scan recently, well, I, I didn't see it. I didn't want to see it. But just supposing, which happily was not true, supposing they'd found something sinister on this MRI scan. Would it have been a loving thing to tell me the untruth? Would it have been loving to tell me, yeah, you're all right, there's nothing there? That's just softness. That's just cowardice. And there are too many Christians who want to live their lives on that kind of level. You see, we want to be loving. Because I love my Saviour, and I love the Gospel, and I love the Church, and I love you, that I want to tell you. There are many who oppose. And the fight is on. Don't be naive. It only keeps, it's only a matter of the silent majority keeping silent for the enemy to come in like a flood. I suppose one of the things that I, one of the very few things that I felt I failed miserably about when he was arrived, sure I failed at lots of things, but one thing I did fail at was to stir people in this congregation to recognise we have a responsibility for the wider church in this sense, not just missionaries sending out, but because there's a battle on for the soul of the Church of England and the wider Church of Jesus. There's an open door and there are many who oppose. Enter with eyes open. And finally, enter with hearts on fire. Oh, yes, of course, love does matter. Do everything in love. Mind you, have you ever noticed the person who comes to you and puts his hand on your shoulder and says, Now, Philip, what I'm going to say to you now is in love. You know you're in trouble when they say that. It's in love. Now, please, yes, we have to do things in love. And if you think I've been unloving what I've said, I apologize if I were, but I assure you I'm not. I care deeply. But there are three ways in which we love, said these verses at the end of 1 Corinthians 16. Loving the truth, loving your brother, Loving the Lord. Loving the truth. We sang some songs about it. I'm, I'm glad we, sort of, we, we, we chose the songs so well. We chose the songs. are very good. They fitted well, this idea of arising and being strong. There in verse 13, be on your guard. 
Stand firm in the faith. Not in faith, in the faith. That is, in the truth we believe, in the doctrine handed down to us, in the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done on the cross and the glorious resurrection. Stand firm in that faith. Be men of courage. You don't have to be courageous to be a sort of vague Christian who goes to church occasionally but doesn't sort of get involved. Anybody can do that. But to dare to stand up today and be counted, have you seen how often people want to wear a cross when they're they're working? People who want to make a certain stand because they're a bed and breakfast establishment and they want to stand against immorality. Have you seen how hard it is for those sort of people? Go on to the Christian Institute on your website. Every Christian in this church ought to be involved in the Christian Institute. There's a meeting here sometime later in this year by them. Because they are battling to help people to make a stand for the truth which we should all love. Loving the truth. Secondly, loving your brother. All the lovely bits about Timothy, who was a timid man. Please welcome him. Apollos, who was a very strong character. Well, help Apollos. And all the other names at the end. This lovely picture. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Well, you do it as you wish. You can, uh, whatever happens, a holy kiss. It's a long time ago since one lady came to me. Uh, uh, she'd come to church the first time and she had wanted to greet her neighbour uh, with a loving kiss in the communion service at the, at the bit. You know, where you, we, we shake hands with one another and say how are you and all the rest. And uh, at that particular point of the piece, she put her arms round this gentleman who was next to her, but he had slid from her grasp. He was already on his knees in prayer. And uh, <laughs> she came to the front and said, I don't know about that gentleman, he's got some trouble. I said, no, it's no problem at all. He just uh, tried to avoid your embrace. And I nearly said, I don't blame him. But anyway, that wasn't, I didn't say that. So however you do it, I leave it with you. But this whole idea of loving the brother. We belong to one another. We're in the battle together. What a difference it makes to be in the battle together. We're not on our own. And we need to be alongside some folk who are battling on their own. Churches where this kind of congregation will be unthinkable. They need our encouragement. There are all sorts of issues that we go through, church plants and so on. But it's very important that we should demonstrate, not only in our giving, but in our praying and our caring, we love our brother. And finally, loving the Lord. Just two things. Would you please note that the word be strong in verse 13 is literally be strengthened, do everything in love. That is, it's not what we do by just making sure we're strong. He will strengthen us. We are weak. It takes courage these days to stand up and be a Christian. It always did. But when you think it's tough, just spare a thought for people who actually will die for standing up for the truth. Will be butchered. Just remember... And as we face militant Islam and militant atheism and we face failures in the church, then uh, we need to be strengthened by the Spirit to enable us to stand firm. And the Lord will give us strength. But I want to draw your attention mostly to two words that come in verse 22, just before the grace and the love. Two words, and they are kept in the original, one in the Greek and one in the Aramaic. And it simply says, anathema maranatha. Which probably doesn't say very much to us. 
But the word anathema is used in one other place in the New Testament particularly, in Galatians chapter 1, where Paul says, look, even if we or an angel from heaven, Galatians 1.8, preach a gospel other than the one we preach, let him be anathema, eternally condemned. And then the next verse he says, as we've already said, so now I say again. And he repeats the last verse again. He wants it to make it as sure. Let it be anathema, accursed. Anybody preaches a gospel which denies the reality of my Saviour dying on the cross for my sins, preaches a gospel other than the one which proclaims the glorious, majestic resurrection of Jesus, which wants to say, like this uh, author who just written a book about Jesus and the Christ, the old nonsense about Jesus being a nice man and the church has made it all up about him being son of God, that's nonsense. Anybody who denies the fact that Jesus was son of God, yes, he must be anathema. Because, you see, he is insulting the son of God who died on the cross for me. And because I love Jesus and he's made all the difference to my life, I will not allow his name to be besmirched. It is not a matter of my great love that I allow people to say that kind of thing. They must be opposed because I love him. We have all too long been the kind of Christian people who imagine that keeping our mouths shut and being kind of weak and timid is a mark of our love. Nonsense. If we really loved, we would love our Lord more than anything else. Do you love me more than these? David asked us this morning, the words of Jesus. I bring them to you. But happily, anathema isn't the end. Anathema, maranatha. Do you know what maranatha means? Please come, Lord Jesus. That lovely word of the return of Jesus. We sing that lovely hymn of Stuart Townhend, which ends, Till he returns or calls me home. That's a lovely picture. And one day he will return. The next great historic event after the resurrection and ascension. So we live between them. And one day he comes. And because we're living in a world of tension, there are moments when we cry, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Okay. As you get older you might do it more often. But I think it's not just for older people. It's a cry that should come from all of us. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But the challenge is, you see, we're going in our last few minutes to be reminded of the wonder and the finality of what Christ did on the cross and the wonder and the finality of the glorious resurrection for after Easter is always Easter. That is, Christ being raised from the dead never dies again. We can't go back beyond Easter. And until that final day of his return, these are the great moments, but it's only because he did die on the cross and the work is finished that I can look onto that day with hope. For when he returns or calls me home, all that will matter is what have I done with him. All the other things will fade into insignificance. Yes, please, we love our brother. We love the truth. Supreme, we love our Lord. And we look on to that great day when he returns. And even now in heaven, he bears the marks of the cross. He still is in heaven, my Saviour.
And when he returns, I shall again see the marks of the cross in the victorious returning Jesus. What an open door. Please go through it. Be sure before you go through it, he's come into your open door and change your life. And then, please, I look around this congregation on the Sunday after Easter, I say to myself, look, the potential here is so enormous. He must expect a lot of us. Lord, give us grace to be worthy. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing. Let's pray.